ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Well, here we go with another Books of the Year podcast, which is going to be a chat with Michael Connolly. Um, we did this slightly out of sequence. Uh, so I think Matt's here at the moment. I am here at the moment, but it's going to sound a little odd because we begin the interview with Michael where, where I am uh, furiously trying to get my laptop to work in my attic. And and it's not playing ball and doesn't play ball for about 10 minutes. Uh, and I, it's fair to say I was I was not in my most patient of moods with my laptop at that when point. When are you ever? When are you ever in a patient <laughs> mood? <laughs> but I was particularly, yeah, fraught. Few, few, uh, few words that I'm not proud of coming out of my mouth uh, during those ten minutes. But, but the important thing was that it did get sorted. And so, uh, yes, if you can bear to be having no mat for the first ten minutes of the interview, then uh, then I'm sure you'll be fine. Email from uh, Paul Emerson. If you'd like to email us, uh, books of the year at yahoo.com. Simon and Matt, what a great creator exposed me to. Was the best podcast the world can offer and the only one I need to put aside time oh, to listen to. Here we go. What he didn't issue me is the gift of patience. Not just like yes. Matthew. <laughs> this, this causes me a dilemma. I love your podcast, but I hate waiting for them. I love your podcast. It has coordinated my reading in recent months and has exposed me to authors and titles that I know would have otherwise passed me by. I do appreciate that you may be busy. Actually, swipe that. I'm not sure I do appreciate that. Anyway, <laughs> I, I just love your podcast. Do more at a faster pace. You know what this is? This is an email from Ben, the producer. Yes, it Pretend, is, clearly. Pretending to be Paul Emerson <laughs> and just it's just a complete farce. Come on, guys. Do more. Exactly. More and faster. Anyway, uh, we got some feedback from our last show, yes. which is the Andy Weir one. Andy Weir, so, uh, which of course was for Project Hail Mary. So, Hail Mary Pass, which uh, has nothing to do with Catholicism and everything to do with American sport. Uh, Alison Davey says, Hail Mary Pass, it's like when your goalkeeper rushes up and plays off it. How very prescient of, uh, oh, of Andy no, Weir. Oh, so not that. another very Liverpool... Like we a don't need to discuss Alison scoring against West Brom, 95th minutes. Uh, Timothy on Project Hail Murray says, uh, just finished this book, laughing and crying the entire way through. It is really good. Uh, best sci-fi book I've ever read, says Francesco. I'm so close to finishing, but truly don't want it to end. And Paul Hawkins, just listened to Andy Weir on Books of the Year, and it was remarkable how many favourite authors and books we shared. And I thought I was the only person who loved Heinlein, but could never really get into Stranger in a Strange Land. 
Sam Ellis, I've been catching up with books of the year. I was that far behind. The first episode started, Simon and Matt, wishing me a happy Christmas. But my catch-up has resulted in me ordering books by John Sopel and David Baddiel. And I can't wait to read them. You can find all of the podcasts where you found this one. And the Baddiel one is great. The John Sopel one is great. In fact, they're all great. They're all fact, great. I mean, you know, there's not... Because we're that, great. But yeah, there's a, it's all killer, no filler. That's, that's very much how this works, I think. Yes. And you know what? You know what's great? You don't have to subscribe. You, do, you don't have to subscribe or go into some kind of big organization and give your details to the man <laughs> just to get a books podcast because <laughs> because it's completely free. What is this turning into? Oh, it's all right. <laughs> it's a bit of a rant on yeah. the man. Yes, Very much that's right. Pay no the man by to the listening man. to a podcast. Anyway, Matt's computer is disappearing. <laughs> which, as you can tell, is a useful warm-up for getting into the opening stages of Michael Connolly. So the first bit of the interview, Matt disappears, and then, as if by magic, he turns yeah. something on. And uh, anyway, here we go. So here's our special guest. It's Michael Connolly. So here we are. It's another Books of the Year podcast. I'm delighted to say that we've been joined from Las Vegas by crime writer Michael Connolly, who looks as though he's in a palace of some kind. Hello, Michael. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm <laughs> I'm doing okay, and I'm feeling embarrassed about my spare room where I've been broadcasting from for a while. Next to your spare room, which looks as though it is pretty impressive. You think? Yeah, there. you should get um, some mirrors installed in your uh, ceiling. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I'll see. I'll start the family discussion now and uh, and see where we go with that. So, uh, Michael Connolly's The Law of Innocence is out. Uh, is out in paperback. Um, before, just before you, we, we get into Mickey Helen explaining precisely what's going on uh, here, uh, Michael. Um, obviously, you're out of lockdown and you're in you're in Vegas and you're working and you've got books coming out and you've got podcasts and uh, and so on. How did how did you find it when you were, you know, at peak lockdown when no one was going anywhere? Did you find it creative or did you find it problematic? It was problematic for about a month uh, because, like. Uh, everybody in the world, you didn't really know what was going on, what was going to be the future. Um, and then, you know, it kind of dropped into routine. You know, I work at home most of the time, so I didn't have the kind of hardship many people had. So um, I ended up being having a pretty uh, productive year. Um, uh, I don't know whether I should be embarrassed to say that because we all know a lot of people had a lot of hardships. But it was just, you know, a momentary... Uh, I guess momentary about a month I found myself unable to write because I was kind of glued to the 24 hour news feed and, and trying to figure out what's going on in the world and, you know, uh, whether this was the apocalypse or not. And there's a fascinating hint of that in the law of innocence where I think Mickey is in the car with Bosch and Bosch is listening to the radio and he says, where the hell is Wuhan? And when I read that line first time, I thought, wow, this is going to be amazing. They've got some kind of, uh, some kind of development that's happening uh, in China. But it, you're just reacting to the news, and then the story goes up till uh, March of 2020. How did that insert itself into the story? You obviously felt as though you needed to include a reference. Yeah, I mean, I write in real time. My books are set in the year they come out. And, uh, you know, this has happened before. We had 9-11, and I put that into a book. Um, you know, I, I want the books to, you know, reflect a little bit about what's going on in the world. So it kind of sets 
what's happening in whether it's Harry Bosch or Mickey Hall or whoever, um, you know, what's, what's going on in the world as this story is happening. And um, I actually was well into this book, writing it, uh, when the pandemic happened and things shut down, including all the courthouses here in LA. And so I was faced with this thing, do I ignore this? Do I, uh, um, you know, act like uh, this did not happen during this year? And, and then if you, if you don't include references to the pandemic, you can't really include references to other uh, cultural and social things that are going on. To me, that's not being honest. And I know I've talked to other writers and many writers said, well, people aren't going to want to read about this once they get through it. You know, they're going to be tired of it. And I was cognizant of that as well. So it's it's not an overwhelming part of the story. It's uh, it's a little bit of the backdrop of it um, that that this kind of stuff is is happening. At the same time, Mickey's kind of in the fight for his life because he's been accused of a murder. So let's well let's pick up uh, on that. So it starts uh, in the very first chapter with discovery of a body in the boot of his car. Um, Explain the significance of that, Michael, and who the body in the boot is. Um, you know, the significance to me was that um, I, this is, I think, the sixth time I've written a Mickey Haller book. Uh, he's been a, he's appeared in a lot of different books, Bosch books and so forth. But this was a, a story he was going to carry. And it and it becomes difficult because, uh, you know, legal thrillers all end up in a box, that courtroom. And how do you do that different time and time again? And so I thought the, the initial thought was I'm going to make Mickey Haller the, 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 the defendant, you know, and he has to choose to defend himself or hire a lawyer that he thinks is better than him to defend him. And to, in his mind, there's nobody like that. So that was the essential like starting point. And, you know, it's, and so we're not really talking about spoilers, as you just mentioned, it happens in the first chapter. Um, he's pulled over by the cops. They ask him to pop the trunk or the boot, as you call it. And, and there's the body. And, the, and it's a guy named Sam Scales, who's an often repeated character um, in the Mickey Haller books. He's one of um, Haller's clients, a ne'er-do-well con man who's always trying to uh, rip people off in whatever the, uh, the horror uh, moment of the, of the day is, you know, whether it's tsunami relief or relief for a, uh, mass shooting, which happens so often in this country, my country. Um, you know, he's always there with the fake uh, po- uh, uh, websites and, and taking donations and then just pocketing it. So he's not a, a very redeemable human being, but, you know, he doesn't deserve to end up in a trunk with two bullets in his head. And that's what happens here. And, uh, you know, so very quickly, Mickey wants to defy that old adage that a lawyer who defends himself has a fool for a client. He, he's going to put that to test in this, this book and feel that um, he doesn't want anyone working to uh, basically save his life other than himself. I love your use of the word ne'er-do-well, Michael. It doesn't happen enough in crime fiction, in my opinion, to describe a bad character, but, that's, <laughs> but ne'er-do-well works very well, I think. Yeah, Sam's been around in... Uh, He's a, an, uh, he's a recidivist, I think that's the word. Somebody who's in and out of the system but never breaks free, never goes straight, essentially. Yeah. Now, um, we've been having this conversation uh, without Matt, who should be uh, on this conversation, but our screen now says, Matt, 
I don't know whether that means he's actually there or not, but I can always chance a, well, a greeting. I, I, I'm going to chance that you can hear me. If you can hear me, then that's then that's a good sign. And apologies again for my laptop, which I'm going to be chucking out of my loft window as soon as we're finished here. It's been a testing 15 minutes, put it yes. that way. And of course, you're a man of great calm and uh, <laughs> you never shout or get uh, or, or get excited. That's so true, so true. Yeah. Anyway, I'll tell you, I'll get you up to speed. So previously in this interview <laughs> with Michael Connolly, we've established the, the, the book. We've established that uh, uh, Halla and, and Bosch have referred to the fact that there's a bad thing coming in from Wuhan and there's a body in the boot. Um, that's where we're up to, Matt. So great. Listen in, and um, and and you can pick it up in just a moment. Should I, Michael? Should I be picking? Should I be picturing Matthew McConaughey when Mickey Hall is doing his thing? I think that's okay. But at the moment, where um, you know he he was fa- fantastic in the film. The film's like almost twelve years old, and um, at the moment, uh, I'm not fully involved. But there is a TV production being filmed for Netflix on The Lincoln Lawyer, and um, it's a different actor. Um, it's a, it's actually closer to the book. Um, I don't lean into this too much in the books, but I have said in the earlier books that he's Mexican-American, that his mother was a kind of a famous actress in Mexico, and his father was a pretty famous trial lawyer in Los Angeles. And so in this TV show, we've cast this... Uh, Mexican-American actor uh, named Manuel Garcia Rulfo. And he's pretty fantastic. I've seen a lot. I've watched a lot of filming. I've seen cuts of some episodes. And so I think you can picture Matthew McConaughey for now, but that might change. Okay, then I I promise I will adapt once I've watched this. And I do want to ask you about the the Bosch TV series, which I think is terrific. And I'm completely up to date, want to know what's happening on that. But just before... um, Matt comes in. Can I just ask you about life in prison? So, again, it's not a spoiler because it's very early on. Uh, Hallett is in tw- the Twin Towers Correctional Facility. Uh, it's it, and it reads to me, of course, Michael, as though you you too have been incarcerated um, <laughs> in Twin Towers Correctional Facility. Uh, did they? Do your contacts tell you what it's like? Do you get to go in? Do you stay a night in the cell? How does that work out? Uh, no, I guess I could, I could arrange that, you know, maybe if I, uh, was a little tipsy and started driving and they pulled me over, but, uh, yep. I don't do personal research when it comes to jails. Um, but I do have, I actually, when I was a journalist had been in the jail to, to visit and, and do interviews. Um, and so I have a little bit of a sense of the, the sound and the noise of it. Um, but for the most part, um, I ask people about it, people who have been in the jails, uh, either as, uh, uh, law enforcement or, um, have a few people that have uh, spent time in there as, um, uh, as, uh, people that are uh, under arrest. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying I have it hundred percent accurate, but I think, you know, what you're looking for is the isolation and how it gets to you. Um, the lack of communication outside, and then the the fear, you know, the fear that um, for any reason someone might assault you because for the most part, you know, I'd say the wide majority of people are in there because they they may be violent or they have done, uh, have committed crimes. And, uh, you know, so it's, it, it's a scary place. And hopefully that's what comes out in the books that this guy is trying to prep 
to defend himself against the ultimate kind of criminal charge. And at the same time, he's looking over his shoulder at all times. I have to say, Michael, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy this book. I, this is the the first of yours that I've read. But um, if anyone sees the book, they'll see. It. I mean, it, it, the, the thickness of the book is is somewhat intimidating. But I've gobbled this down in about two days. It's just, a, a, it's you know, it's a classic case of just one more chapter, just one more chapter. And um, it's interesting. Well, a couple of things that Simon's just mentioned, I I want to pick up on. One is um, is that feeling of it being authentic, and as you say, the experience. Inside uh, the Twin Towers correctional facility, uh, but also the the experience of being in a in a courtroom with Haller is it it's absolutely feels like everything here, every box is being ticked. That you've really done your 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 homework on this. But the the question I want to ask is actually about something else. It's about you. you so you mentioned Matthew McConaughey at one point in the book, a character refers to the movie. And, and refers to uh, uh, you know the, you you have this movie made about you and I and as soon as I read I, I was it sort of took me back because I was like I can't remember another time where someone has referred to themselves as a as a sort of fictional movie being made in a fictional in a fictional book was that was that were you having a bit of fun with us there Michael what what was going on there Well, I I did this once before, so I kind of broke that. I think they call it the fourth wall. I I broke Mm. that once before. Actually, it was in a Bosch book where he's driving down the street and he sees an ad, uh, I mean, a billboard for uh, the movie. So I did it about 10 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago. And the person with him remarks, do you think Matthew McConaughey looks like Haller? And they say, no, (laughs) not at all. And so I was having fun there, but I also, I got, you know, not a lot, but I got some people... Uh, I got some kickback from people who didn't like you breaking that kind of uh, reality, the so-called fourth wall. But I had already done it, you know, so I thought, well, you know, it's already, the cat's out of the bag. So when I saw an opportunity here, I, I did that. I imagined you writing it, Michael, with a smile on your face, though. No, I think it's fun. I think, you know, it, it goes to Simon's first question before you jumped on here about including anything anything referencing covid um, you know, I, I write, you know, from the reality of what's going on in the world. And in the real world, there is this movie. And at least in, in my country, Matthew McConaughey does ads for Lincoln. He's been doing them for years. Um, so he so the him as the face of the Lincoln lawyer, it continues uh, year after year. And so I just thought it was worth, uh, you know, remarking on that. And we should say, I, I guess, Michael, for, for new arrivals, that he's the Lincoln lawyer because he does his work. He's famous for doing his work in a Lincoln car. That's what he does in a Lincoln town car. Correct. Yeah. The uh, yeah. When you just say the Lincoln lawyer, you think this is set in eighteen sixties or something. <laughs> um, and, and so they're always in the packaging of the books and so forth. They're always uh, very uh, on the page in terms of always showing a car on the cover or showing a very contemporary. Uh, photograph because they don't want want that that confusion. When Lee Child was on, and Ian Rankin does it to an extent as well. He just starts. He, in terms of planning, he doesn't he doesn't plan. He famously has no files on his laptop. I mean, I know he's retired, but you know, he'd open the laptop. There'd be nothing on the laptop, and he would just begin and see where it takes him. Uh, and Ian Rankin, last time he was on, said he he doesn't know who's going to have committed the crime when he starts. Where are you on that? Do you do you just start, Michael, or do you know where you're going? 
I, I think I know more than those guys do, especially Ian. Like, I don't, I don't outline and I don't have a lot of files. I mean, there might be a subject matter uh, that I, like, for example, I, I knew in this book, I had images of, of scenes. Of, uh, so I'm writing a book now, not, not The Law of Innocence, but I'm writing a book now. And I knew before I started writing it that I was going to put this character, it's Renee Ballard, uh, LAPD detective, in a situation where she has to try to save someone's life by doing a field tracheotomy, you know, where they open a breathing uh, hole in your neck. And, and so I did research on that. So I had some files, uh, mostly just links to something like that. And then I, you know, I started writing, um, but I, I pretty much know where it's going to end up. So I don't really start writing till I have a lot in my head. And that's usually the beginning and the end. And, uh, and then I head out and that gives me about 300 pages of stuff I don't know. And, and that is the fun of it. Uh, but I also spend a lot of time with the kind of people I write about, whether they're defense lawyers or, or detectives. Um, and so I, I, I'm always kind of throwing out a net and I'm always getting good stories. And sometimes they're anecdotal, but sometimes I see where I can expand them into uh, – you know, a runner that goes through the whole book, or maybe it's the A, a storyline. And, you know, um, I'm so much, I get so involved in the book I'm writing. So I, I actually can't remember exactly how it went for uh, the law of innocence. Other than what I said, I just wanted to start with Mickey accused of being a murderer and, um, you know, def- deciding to defend himself. That was like the starting point. But the, you know, the book I'm writing now, um, I got. I was told a story about an interesting murder for hire case that a detective worked, and uh, I decided to change it and expand it and add my own stuff to it, and that became the the through line of the story. And it was all kind of in my head before I started writing. And when does, you have the story, Michael, do you, does that dictate which of your characters will run with that story? Is it obviously going to be that's a Haller story or that's a Bosch story? I mean, or or is there a bit of interplay there? There's interplay. I, you know, I often want these characters to cross paths. Um, I have to admit, um, I knew we were going to be working on this TV show. And so I felt I was kind of like in the uh, Lincoln lawyer mode. And, and it, it, the story came to me that way. Um, and so that's how that one came about. I aged my characters in real time. And Harry Bosch, who's the character who brought me to the table, so to speak, um, is aging. And so I, I am also very much aware that, of, you know, if I'm going to try to be as realistic as possible, that becomes the hallmark of what I do, reality and verisimilitude. I can't keep writing about this guy when he's into his 70s, you know, and so I know my time is short with him. So, so more often than not, he comes to mind. Is this a story he carries or is this a story that he's a part in? And like the one I'm writing now, he does not carry it, but he be, ha, he's a, a key part of it. And I think he doesn't even show up till page 60 or something. But then he's he's very important to the story from there on out. 
I know that. Um, Ed, so we've mentioned Ian Rankin on, on in the interview already, and I know he's a, he's a massive fan of yours, Michael. But he is um, one of the things that I love about Rebus is that uh, Ian has been completely unapologetic about saying, "I'm I, I this guy will not go on forever. He will retire, and at some point, the end will come for him." And is it so? It's interesting what you're saying there about your characters. You're you're not. This is not just going to keep on going on. I see an end in sight for for these like, hugely successful uh, characters that you've created. That my guess is your publishers are saying, no, 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 we've got to keep him going, keep him going indefinitely. <laughs> well, they got to keep me going then, you know. <laughs> but I mean, you know, we're like Ian. I'm very lucky in that I've been able to write about this character and other characters over, you know, a big swath of years, and it becomes one big story, and so. You know, from the standpoint of being the author, you want to you want to author the end of the story. And so, you know, I think it's going to be pretty I'm not saying like Harry Bosch dies or anything like that. I actually don't know how it's going to end, but I do want to write the last book and I want it to have a, a sense of finality to it that um, so people will know that that's you've now completed, you know, your your reading through this guy's life. Do you work harder than ever? to stay in touch, Michael, with the procedure, the bureaucracy and the politics. Again, it's the other thing which ties you, I think, with Ian Rankin when he's going through Scottish police procedure, which changes because there are reforms that are happening uh, all the time. And I'm aware that you, first of all, have to get a cracking story with great characters, great dialogue, and just getting the plot uh, is wonderful. But also you need, you know, the procedure and bureaucracy changes because that's what bureaucracies do and you have to you have to stay on that yeah i think it's really important um on one hand i can say it's window dressing on as you just said a character story but it's really important because it defines character um you know i'm writing a book now um that's about the lapd and it's post um george floyd is post the pandemic or semi post the pandemic these things have changed the department dramatically and um, there's a lot of people who feel like the, uh, you know, Harry Bosch has this sign that says, get off your ass and knock on doors. There's a lot of people in the department that believe that doesn't happen anymore. There's no proactive um, effort by the police department um, that it's only reactive. And it's and it's all based on fear that if you make the wrong move, uh, you know, there's another protest with your name uh, demanding justice and so forth. And it, And to me, from what I know from people who are still in an apartment and, and tell me what's going on, it's kind of paralyzed the department. And so if I'm going to write about a detective, Renee Ballard, who's in that bureaucracy, that kind of stalled bureaucracy, I want to get that right. And I want it to be very clear that this is set in, you know, 2021. And this is, you know, the, the police department hasn't even gotten vaccines yet and things like that. Um, that's all going to be part of it, and it's going to be accurate. And I think that adds up to the character that I'm writing about. And, and given what you've said there, Michael, about um, you know um, the, the uh, police officers not having the time to, to, as you say, get off their ass and, and knock on doors, your background in journalism, you must see as well how that has changed in the last 20, 25 years, where 
you know, if you were working at the LA Times now, you would not have the opportunity to do that knocking on doors as much as, as you know, we, well, the three of us have, have worked in journalism. And certainly I know that the, the, the freedoms I had 20 years ago, I would not get now in a newsroom because I bet there would be far too many um, calls on my time and deadlines and, and, and different um, beasts to feed, as it were. Do you see that as a, as a problem in, in journal, journalism as much as in, 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 in the police service? Yeah, yeah. All these institutions are changing. Um, and, you know, I've, I have another series. I don't write about the character too much, the Jack McAvoy series. Who's a, he's a journalist. And I r- had a book come out last year um, called Fair Warning about him. And, again, that was what I was trying to do. I was trying to say this guy's a veteran journalist, but it's a different world now. He's working on a web- for a website. And it's just not the way it was before. And there's good things about that. And there's also bad things about it. And you, you kind of throw these little things in not to be uh, didactic or, you know, oppressive with any of it. It's just this is the way life is for this person now. He is a memory of what it used to be like. And, and uh, you know, I think that just brings some accuracy to the character and connects the, uh, the reader to the character, which is your sole purpose. Uh, the, the, the TV series Harry Bosch, which has been amazingly successful, Titus Welliver's making a great uh, Harry Bosch, is, ter- is brilliantly casted. The stories are terrific. Every, just on the journalism thing, though, Michael, every time Scott Anderson from the LA Times wanders in, who I, it seems to me a bit of a douchebag, really, a bit of a sleaze. <laughs> and I'm thinking that can't be the way Michael wants journalism portrayed because you know if there's i don't know it all just seems a bit dodgy i have um more than once sadly been called a traitor to the tribe (laughs) Um, you know here i was a journalist for a long time um and and i would say uh, i've slowly been bringing anderson more to an accurate at least my vision of of a journalist and you know the thing that you know, I hope he doesn't even hear this. I did that as an honor many years ago, gave the character the name Scott Anderson, who was uh, a journalist that I worked with. In fact, before I got married, I lived with him. We, you know, we shared a, a house and stuff. And, uh, you know, so he's a good friend to this day. And yet he's been kind of vilified in the in the boss show. And so with this last season, I, ha- I really had the intention of... Uh, kind of redeeming that character and i think when that should then when that um season drops next month you'll see him being more of a um character of integrity and doing the right thing as a reporter um but but yeah i mean you know i can't control everything on a show there's seven writers on every season and i've i've kind of sanded off a lot of the sharp edges that have been put on anderson and other journalists as well um but if there's if you if you ask me if there's one regret I had about the show and I have very almost no regrets and this is a, only a minor one, I wish um, I could have you know made that that aspect of the show more akin to what my experience was with uh, LAPD when I was a journalist and it was a t- it was tough and cops don't like journalists that that's that's very accurate but but the way. Anderson operates. I I didn't really operate that way. That way, and uh, so I wish we had not gone down that path. 
So I think what you're saying is, of all the things to have mentioned about my very, very successful TV series, you've picked on the one, <laughs> picked on the one thing that I'm not happy with. Is that well, is when that... I whenever I get interviewed by people who've been around in journalism and seen seen the changes and know what uh, how a good journalist operates, uh, it, it comes up. So, like I said, I've been, <laughs> I've been called the traitor to the tribe more than once. Can I ask you about the um, the podcast? Uh, that you do the murder book, or is it just murder book? Is it murder book? Does, is it a the? It's called murder book. Yeah, just mur- murder book. And I think that's why you're you're in uh, you're in Vegas. And I love uh, it's fa- you know it's fascinating. And you're telling story. It's a true crime podcast. That's that's what it is. But what we hear is you as a journalist, really, and you're doing the interviews. And I wondered if that was quite a joyful thing for you to get back to doing. It really was, um, and it's funny. It's um... I mean, not that you do anything for money all the time, but um, it's really just a uh, a return to uh, telling true stories. Uh, it's not a you know very popular thing in terms of with my agents and so forth. Uh, they would probably rather me put that time into writing a screenplay or writing a book. But I was just you know we've gone through four years of, of talk about traitors to the tribe, just total denigration of of the. Uh, avocation of journalism and it it bothered me a lot and you know i'm a novelist what can i do about it i really can't do a lot about it except maybe um you know tell tell some stories myself some true stories that um uh just kind of bring me closer to to that part of my life and uh so it's been fun obviously i'm not writing i'm talking uh, but, but, you know, I script these out and figure out where the interviews go and things like that and, and put the stories together. And, you know, I think, I think it's, it's, it's valuable. I don't think it's, um, you know, too exploitive. I think we're, we're examining, uh, the justice system and issues in it, uh, failures in it. Um, and we're, sh- we're so showing people that are relentless in, in what they're doing, relentless detectives and, uh, I think that's that's an important thing to to reflect. It's a, well, it's a terrific series, and um, and I love your interviewing style, and I love the way it's put together. So um, uh, far be it for for this podcast to be recommending another podcast, but hey, that's and that's how it works, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and does does the after all the books, Michael, and all the incredible success that you've had, does it still bring the same joys? Are you still as thrilled? to finish a book or still is thrilled to start a book or to get an idea for a book? Is it still as exciting? Because Lee, when, when Lee was on, when Lee Child was on, you know, he explained why he decided to stop and just do other things. I'm, I'm hoping that you're not going to be as misguided as Lee Child in this. <laughs> I don't know. I told Lee that he's inspiring me, but um, I, I don't know. I don't think I can ever completely stop. And you do get, um, I still get a lot of fulfillment. I know that it's probably hard to believe for some people, but, um, you know, you, I talked about the field tracheotomy. I wrote that scene a couple of days ago and, you know, it was something I was planning for for months and I got to the point in the book where I had to write it. And I just, I kind of felt like this is going to be a cool scene when people read it. And, and I felt really good. I wrote it over a two day period and, uh, I don't know. It, it, it paid off for me. Uh, I'm, v- I'm very happy with it. And, and so you find those kind of fulfillments in, uh, in every, in every book I write, I, I have them. And so, um, 
if I, you know, I've been extremely lucky, very, very successful beyond what I deserve or have ever imagined. But it, even if it hadn't come and I was, I was, you know, just uh, still writing and plugging away at it, it, it is something that can give you um, a good feeling within every day, sometimes within an hour. Um, and so that's probably why I keep doing it. I'm not tired of, of getting that kind of uh, uh, feeling. Does the new book have a title? Uh, the one I'm writing? Yeah, it's called The Dark Hours. And that's um, a Renee Bauer, the one who works on the midnight shift at Bell APD. I've just been sent some gigs for you to go to tonight in Vegas. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Scorpions are on. Wow. Okay. Here we go. Uh, Queen's Rike. Are you a metalhead, Michael? Not, not really, but I know who these people are. These bands, I've heard of them at least. Might they tempt you out to a show? <laughs> are they? Um, <laughs> they're, are they uh, a double bill? They're playing together. I don't know. That looks. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to say they are. And I, I, the reason to go and see Scorpions would be uh, there was a. Oh, we've been talking about podcasts. There was a great podcast um, last year um, about whether um, the CIA wrote "Wind of Change" by the Scorpions. And uh, and the sort of culmination of this podcast is the is the guy that's been doing the investigation talks to the lead singer of of the Scorpions about whether whether in fact his his most famous hit was written for him by the CIA. And it's fair to say that the lead singer says no, <laughs> I wrote it myself. Thanks very much. But my instinct is that at most concerts featuring the Scorpions from now on, that's gonna come up. Because out my window, I see this gigantic, uh, it's like a 20-story billboard. And it keeps showing what's in town. And I haven't seen the scorpions on there yet. Just stay in, Michael, and watch the Zack Snyder Army of the Dead <laughs> Zombies in Vegas movie. That'll make you feel great. Yeah, yeah you'll want to stay inside then. <laughs> uh, Michael Connolly, it's a, a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much uh, for talking to us. The Law of Innocence is Michael's new book out in paperback. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>